Welcome to the Prize of Possibility podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mitch Ablett. I have a strong belief that the greatest prizes in life are hidden in plain sight. They are the nuances, the nooks and crannies of everyday moments that are easily missed. Join me in these conversations with authors and influencers and researchers to miss fewer of them, to truly claim these prizes. All right, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm very excited to be joined here this evening by a friend and colleague, Dr. Adam Weinstein. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do his intro here. He's he's one of only the this is not off of the the professional stuff I found online or that you sent me, Adam. Um, he is one of only two real doctors I've had on the, the show thus far. Um, <laughs> not the not the fake doctors like me, you know, with the PhD, you know, no offense to the others. Um, uh, but Adam is a uh, nephrologist, and he is the VP of medical affairs uh, with with clinical IT services at DeVita uh, Health. And he is a part time practicing clinical nephrologist in Maryland. And he serves um, on a number of committees. And he has uh, also been the co-founder of the Kidney Health Center of Maryland. And he got his MD from uh, the University of Maryland, Maryland School of Medicine. And that's where uh, you did uh, further training, like residency and whatnot. And yep. Uh, yep. So that. Adam, <laughs> very excited to have you on, you know, real doctor that you are not the fake one like me but uh you know we're gonna we're gonna chat like we have many times before but about something that i think is uh really really important for not just physicians uh but for psychologists uh for the teachers that um um i've you know spoken to and work with before you know a lot of professions experience um the effects of uh burnout you know most of us have heard that term many of us have experienced it very very important particularly uh, with what people have been going through with the the pandemic but thank you adam for joining me well i'm thrilled to be here with you mitch i know i know we started this conversation probably what four or five months ago now is to the potential to have a conversation about burnout on your podcast and and you know the the a the opportunity i'm glad to take it and second i couldn't agree with you more the 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 value of thinking about and i think perhaps coming up with some thoughts and tactics around how to cope with professional burnout is uh something that's on my mind a lot these days yeah yeah so what what uh, what brings you to having a interest or a wanting to talk to folks about burnout what what makes that relevant for you yeah, really two things. So I, I have obviously a personal story, like I said, I think so many people find themselves in a place uh, with, and, and I'm happy to share some of that. And, and then my job over the last five or six years has, has migrated from full-time clinical practice to now a doctor that works at a system level. First, it was with my hospital system in a role that was with population health and uh, working with the physicians, whether it was the credentialing office or the peer review office. But now in my role at DeVita, 
Um, I am the clinical lead for what we call our physician experience team. And, and that means that we engage with our physician partners. They're not employees of DaVita, but rather they are physicians who choose to credential with us and come and see patients at our dialysis centers. And my job is to help oversee software that we write for them, uh -huh. education materials that we deliver to them, and then communications. And baked into each of those lanes, if you will, is, is the, the consideration about what we are asking of those physicians. Yes. The time, the, the, the effort that it takes to engage with us, and then with the goal of adding value at each step of the way. And so, um, you know, that's, that's the end point of the conversation, I think. The, the beginning uh -huh. really starts with, you know, my role as a, as a physician and how I came to this place, which was, I think, a, a longer story than you probably want to get into in the podcast. But <laughs> suffice to say that after 10 years of running a practice, I found myself in a, in a not great place. Yeah. And it was you know, years of, of stress, years of 100 to 110 hour work weeks, yeah, innumerable patients that had legitimate needs and a, an overwhelming sense of being swamped 100% of the time. Yeah. It, and, and when you were in that full time practice mode, as someone who does full time private practice as a psychologist, what were you, what were you thinking about, you know, you know, yourself, like how, how am I supposed to do this differently? Is this, this something that's wrong with me? You know, am I supposed to be bigger or better than this? You know, did it feel isolating? What, because I, I would imagine a lot of physicians out there that are either in full-time practice or in, you know, in another setting, definitely in my field as well, it can feel very much like it's something wrong with them. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, and you know, he healthcare in general is, is a field that, that asks you to work harder and asks you to accommodate an amazing array of personal sacrifice for the, for the sake of the patient, the sake of yeah. the institution, the sake of the profession. To yeah. some degree, it, it felt like I had entered a religious order, oh, almost wow. like um, being a monk or a priest or something like that as being a physician and, 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 you know, the training is very intense. You, you obviously are awake many, many nights of the, 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 the week or the month when you're a physician in training. Yeah. And that translates into the work life where, you know, you start a practice, there's an innumerable need. There's um, the, the fact that it is a, what's called a fee for service system by and large still, which means that unless you're seeing patients, your, your practice is not generating revenue. Yes. And, and, and th that combination of both the philosophy of training of 10 or 12 years of on call or Carter, then entering a world where that philosophy plus an economic driver to be successful within the practice, all facilitated, I think, th the sense that the answer was work harder all the time. And I, I remember at, at sort of the peak of my, I, I guess, you know, I don't want to say burnout, but the peak of, of the feelings that you describe was talking to myself in the shower. I just, yeah. I just need to get through today. I just need to get through the day. And, and the sense that, I, you know, especially toward the end of my full-time clinical career, I was angry at my patients sometimes because it felt, yeah. it felt like their problems were, were, I was taking it personally. Like they were having health problems and, it was, and, and that was against me and my day. So when they had problems at 8 a.m. and it was an extend my day some, someone needed something urgently, 
that I took offense to that at the end. And, and it's, yeah. it was hard to be empathetic, empathetic, sorry. It was hard to be, I, I think, um, you know, engaged. And when you got home, you're just exhausted and you were disengaged from family. It's, it's a very disruptive to any sort of normal lifestyle at baseline. And then when you start those feelings, you do begin to wonder why you're in the field. Why am I doing this? It, right. it feels like an endless treadmill of, of need and want, and you're sacrificing yourself along the way. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard, you know, as a psychologist, I've worked with a wide range of professionals that have come into my practice as, as patients. And, you know, I, I, I've heard this from lawyers, I've heard this from physicians, I've heard this from other clinicians, you know, you know therapists, uh, teachers, you know, where you go through all of this training, your, your ethics and the, the role that you've identified with, and I use that word very intentionally, there's this, there's this ego identification, not in a, like, necessarily what most of us would say by ego, like a narcissism, but it's like, who I am is this role. And I signed up for this. So I just have, this is who I am. This is what I do that it, it becomes this thing where, you know, you become so fixated on it that it's hard to have any degrees of freedom and perception. And the other thing I'll say is that it doesn't matter, you know, particularly, I think, you know, my, my perception, Adam, like, we look at physicians as, like, you know, particularly, rightly so, in COVID is like these superheroes that are going in and doing this work and and we're we just expect more and more. They're they're there to save lives. You know, you guys are about, you know, keeping us alive, helping us function, you know, fighting off disease, fighting off uh, you know, failings in the body. And yet you have the same body and you have the same brain that the rest of us do. And that includes, and here's where I am as the shrink coming in, that includes the same archaic fight, flight, freeze, survival brain wiring that we had as a species 100,000 years ago that wants to protect against pain. And whether we call it burnout, whether in my field we call it, uh, it you know, from a slightly different angle, secondary trauma or vicarious traumatization. Um, our brains want to self-protect and that can end up looking like, you know, mild to moderate or more severe depression or an anxiety disorder or blunting of your ability to function and be effective. It's a huge issue. I would imagine it's going to be a bigger issue. I don't, I don't know what, uh, what you're seeing in terms of rates of people in your field that are struggling right now. Well, I, I, the rates, the rates of depression, the rates of burnout, the rates of even physician, and I, I suppose other professions, though I'm not as familiar with the data on that, of suicidality is, is quite high. And, yeah. and, and it's, and you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's funny, because, you know, in my, in my role as a, as a physician leader now within an organization, I, I often speak of what I call the, the, especially with, with physicians who have trained for, you know, a decade or more, the almost like an emotional blunting, an emotional, um, uh, under development that they go through. So, you know, yeah. you think about what many of us do to get to a high intensity profession is you go to college and then during your twenties, when I think a, a more say traditional lifestyle of, of work would get you to that place where you'd 
mature as an adult into normal, healthy relationships, and you would have a, a differential work-life balance facilitating a, a development of both a professional life and a personal life, many of us, in, in, in especially in healthcare, but I imagine other intense fields, trade that off. We, yes. are, we are only that doctor. And so as you, as you were describing some of that, you know, I, I certainly can both identify with it and I see it, which is when I stopped being a full-time clinician, I actually then had time to, to start developing things like a relationship with my wife that was different than the person I was when I was 19 when we met and 25 yes. when we married. It gave me a different view of, you know, sort of the emotional side of my relationships with people because you're right. 90% of my week was I was Dr. Adam doing doctor things in a professional role. And I carried a gravitas in every conversation I was in because I was the doctor. And, you right. know, it's hard when you like go to say Whole Foods and you're getting produce or you go to the fish right. counter at home and you're like, I am Dr. Weinstein and am I ordering salmon? I mean, that's just not, <laughs> that's not a healthy way to approach salmon purchasing or anything <laughs> no. else outside of being a doctor. And so it's, it's, you're exactly right. It, it creates this identity. And when I left, when I left full-time practice, I had not only, and I, I still perceive or a, a certain amount of survivor's guilt, that is, I have one of the fewer available roles in healthcare in which I am treated like a normal person, which is a business role more than a yes. full-time on-call physician role. But I, I also had to take time to develop that stuff I didn't develop in my 20s when I was training. It's a, it's a fascinating yeah. place. And I see it in my colleagues when I deal with them today in other roles, the the things that when they start to step outside the bounds of being a doctor, it's clear they're not comfortable navigating that. Um, and yeah. so anyway, to that end, when you then leave it, your identity has to go through a sort of a, a development process because the question was, if I'm not Dr. Adam, because I'm not seeing patients all the time, who am I? What am I doing? Yeah. What does it mean to be Adam? <laughs> I, 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 a question I had for you thinking about our conversation is, you know, I wonder if in the healthcare field and, and for physicians, it can be re and I've seen this with um, uh, people in law enforcement, for example, or some attorneys I work. It's it seems to be not due to any individual failing of a the you know the person, but there seems to be this generalized reluctance to even acknowledge that there's a struggle internally that there is a burnout that there is a uh there are pain points that are growing and you know that i think is a crucial issue that it can it go so against that identity to acknowledge that that in order we you know organizations or practices can suggest a lot of strategies and offer resources but if people feel like they can't even acknowledge that they're experiencing these things you know that would be a huge obstacle oh my God. well so you, you've hit a, a couple just really key points in this so number one is that as physicians i think we have a hard time acknowledging our own sort of mortality and our own frailty second when you're a licensed medical professional, there are a number of sort of institutional and uh, I would say administrative barriers to wanting to self-report and self-disclose. Um, yeah. Thirdly, when you stop and ask for help as a physician or even take vacation, you are 
transferring work to your colleagues. Almost mm. every specialty shares call, shares shifts. In, and when you stop working, it's not like there's a deep bench of extra personnel to help make up the work. And so you have, you know, I don't like, I didn't like it when my partner took a month off of work to go to his homeland to visit with his family. I intellectually yeah. understood that that was a totally normal and rational thing to do, but it left me with a month of work at the office. And I, in turn, did not want to leave other people with that. And I think those barriers, that is, I'm a licensed medical professional. There's a stigmata around, or stigma, sorry, around disclosing your own failings, maybe problems with further employment. If you say I'm depressed or I'm anxious, yep. people will look at you differently. And you bear this sort of collaborative, uh, I guess, you know, sort of shared pain where you don't want to put extra work on other people around you. And so all of that is the barriers leading in. And then you're right, organizations that employ physicians, hospital systems, medical practices, they're not as well geared toward dealing with this in the same way that almost any other organization is. And we've, we've certainly evolved over the last, I would say, five or 10 years. There's a whole body of work on burnout and physicians. It's obviously a hot topic. But I think there's a disconnect at the organizational level. Um, you know, what is recommended, and, and for instance, the AMA, the American Medical Association, has a, a very robust website, and they actually have researchers on this, uh, uh, this topic, people that publish uh -huh. on this in great depth. But the reality is that operationalizing their suggestions becomes really challenging because mm. a lot of them are, are, are expensive, meaning you hire extra people or limit the amount of work people do. And organizations, especially in healthcare, have a hard time drawing out ROI for more than a, a short period of time. Meaning if I spend a yeah. dollar this year, I need to see its return in the same fiscal year. Yes. And by, by hiring and, and modifying physician work, and getting less productivity out of your doctor today, it's hard to then roll that into the cost savings of not having the turnover, the loss of the physician, which is incredibly expensive. Three, four times the salary of a physician is what it costs to turn a physician over. And I suspect that's true wow. of almost any professional. But nobody looks at the budget like that. Say, hey, had we invested an extra 50K somewhere along the way, we wouldn't be spending 400K on the tail end of that physician leaving. It's just that's not how the math works for them. And and so there's the there are these, and not just in your field, in my field as well, particularly in organizational settings, hospital settings. Um, there's the 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 structure, you know, the organizational structure, the way the economics of it are set up are stacked against actual implementation of, of things in a way that will be sustainable and um, you know, really help, per, you know, ameliorate and then prevent it going forward. That's yeah. what I take from what you're saying. I, I think yeah. that's absolutely true. And doubly so in, in an environment in healthcare, um, where, you know, cost reduction, revenue cycle management, all of those things are such a critical piece of the operations of the organization. When you're a hospital and you're making, you know, 1%, 2%, 3% margin, and, and it's, it's the number is big, that is the absolute value of that number is big, but the real, the real amount of, of, of net is not as large as you would imagine. And then you go down to the level of the business unit, you know, the internal medicine team, the nephrology team, the surgical team, it becomes really hard to bake this stuff in. And, you know, there, there's totally reasonable suggestions that all at the, at the organizational level go about schedule redesign around you know, how do you prep for a day? So, oh, we're going to 
cuddle for you know 20 minutes before each clinic window so that my <laughs> team can be organized around which patients are coming in. And the reality is that that what that then would require is staff clocking in early. That would require yeah. reviewing your charts and your notes ahead of time so that you have the capacity to do all that stuff. Or right. saying, I'm going to take off an extra fr- an extra day of the week when I'm on call on the weekend. Well, that's all well and good, except now that's that much less revenue for your department, much less revenue yeah. for whatever. And so anyway, you're right. It's just uh, the, the it's it. I don't think the science and the, the ideas are bad, but I think it's really hard to operationalize that stuff in reality. Yeah. Is, is there, uh, and you may not know, but I, I'm curious as to whether there have been longitudinal, really comprehensive studies looking at if we really do implement a model like this over time, it is cost effective. Organizations yeah. will do well financially. They'll actually maybe, and this is just my guess, they'll actually do better. And the, you know, the you know, work satisfaction, the career development, the vitality of the staff would go up. I mean, this is this is what I've seen on a small scale in setting you know, a couple of settings where I've worked, where people just want to be there. Yeah, and Cert- yeah, yeah, no, no, certainly uh, there, there is there are studies out there looking at both measured through various inventories satisfaction with work, as well as the the ROI on this stuff. Um, I, I have, you know, and there's certainly organizations that have been more successful than others at implementing these kind of changes, undoubtedly. Yeah. I think for the typical medical practice, the typical organization, it's very hard to make this kind of change without yeah. a strong push from both clinical leadership as well as administrative leadership. And in, in areas where, you know, it's hard to recruit and retain physicians, it's doubly hard to make these kind of changes. And so in rural communities and small communities, at large institutions where you have a deeper bench, you have much more robust expertise, you have much more administrative, I guess, um, you know, agility in certain ways, it certainly is the kinds of places you find this stuff. And, and in institutions where they're doing research on burnout and research on work effectiveness as part of the overall delivery of care within the, you know, like a large integrated health system or a university setting, you're gonna find much more, I think, um, both uh, interest in this topic as well as things that have been implemented to try and make it uh, a real in that organization. Yeah, so there, you know, I, I think we'll end up both feeling burned out if we keep talking at the organizational <laughs> level around this because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm always much more interested as, as massively important as that is on the individual experience level. You know, because an individual physician or psychologist, you may not have much choice in a given moment in time around the organization and, you know, the patient flow coming in. And yet over the arc of your career, you have moments of decision. You have you have a bit of steerage as to where am I going to go with this this thing called career? And, and I wonder about that, you know, because of that identity piece where in certain fields uh, like yours to, you know, some degree in mine and in others, it's like, well, this is what I signed up for. This is who I am. And yet an individual can really start to relate to that identity. And is this who I really am? Are there ways, even though I can't change the system, 
are there ways that I can change how I view who I am within this and then maybe steer in different directions? Yeah, I, it's a great question. And, and, you know, it's something that I actually have gotten better at, but it takes practice, which means it takes time, which means it takes dedication and discipline. And that's, that's hard. It's hard in a field like healthcare where you may be, you know, called multiple times a day while you're trying to complete other tasks. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, I actually, I have my little list of things that I, I talk about with my colleagues when I'm faced with having to counsel someone or I'm faced with, you know, a physician that you're trying to, I, I think, get more out of their job without losing them as a, as a, as a professional in your organization. And so I, I, running through my list, in my, in, in the first that I've, I've discovered is, is the value of, of mindfulness meditation. Um, and I, I use some programs that require very little time, 10 minutes a day, um, yep. which felt like something I could dedicate myself to. I've been doing that for a couple of years. And you know, just the idea of being not as reactive. I mean, essentially it's cognitive therapy for yourself with an, yeah. with, a, with, an with an app, which yeah. trains you to be aware of your thoughts. So you're not just, you know, a, a, a wind, a, a flag blowing in the wind of emotion is the way I think of it. Right. Um, and that, that's, that's the first step, but, but really there's a bunch of other tactical stuff. The first that, that I always recommend my colleagues do is, is scheduling and calendaring, which seems stupid, but I will tell you that when I was in full-time practice, if I didn't put something on my calendar a year out, it didn't happen. And even yes. if it didn't happen on that day, it gave me a block of time to flex around. And so yep. vacations, mm. religious holidays, um, especially if you know, you're something other than Christian and you don't want to take off only Christmas and right. New Year's right. and Thanksgiving. Um, I think I think working around your kids' school schedule. So I, I had my staff pull my kids' school schedule and block off the week so that mm. those didn't get over. Because remember, I do follow-up appointments and you're doing follow-up appointments six months and a year out. Yep. And so the patients are scheduled. It's much easier just to not put them there. And even if you have to move them, you have the block of time. It, it's amazing how little things like that start to make a big difference. And it's struggle. It's a struggle, but even preparing for the day differently. So coming in early or dedicating the first block of time to preparing for the rest of the blocks of time in the day gives you, I think, a, a stronger peace of mind. Again, it's not being reactive. It's when I walk through that exam room door to see the first patient of the day, I already have a plan in mind. Now, it may not be 100% there. I may need to yeah. actually see the patient, examine them, do things. But, but pre-charting, pre-work, it takes discipline to do that because your inclination is I'm going to get every ounce out of my morning before I show up at work. And so yes. if I, my first patient's at 8 a.m., I'm showing up at 7.58. And God yes. help me if the computer doesn't boot up that day. But, but that's that. I mean, just but, but then show up at 7 and do a little extra work up front. You might get home earlier. You might be able to leave earlier because you're not completing your task at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the last couple things I do is, is I've, I've learned to delegate. Um, this is tough. especially yes, it is. Especially in an organization where you're the doctor and then the people beneath you are in the organization, it are, are, are medical assistants and, and front office clerks and, and giving them the space to learn and to take on tasks to the top of their ability and then asking. Because it turns right. out that, you know, it felt to me like when you ask someone to do something initially, I was um, sort of shirking responsibility because yes. I, can, I can clean a toilet, I can schedule someone in a system, I can do, but you shouldn't. And, right. and so developing the discipline to do that. And then, and then lastly, 
you know, it, it's important to take that time to talk about the mission and vision for yourself. Yes. And, 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 and finding that time in the presumably pre-scheduled vacation time that you've now put on your calendar um, <laughs> is, is, is absolutely critical to say, do I want to be this for the rest of my life? Am yeah. I going to be Dr. Adam and die at my desk with my stethoscope around my neck? Or do I want to accomplish something more than just one patient at a time care? Now, the answer very well could be, I am totally fine with one patient at a time. That's right. This is my vision and, and, you, and you're all in on this. But it could also be like many of my colleagues, I think, I think after so many years of it, you, you feel the need to do more and different things. And f- then, then it's, you know, how do you, how do you act on that once you have that idea in your head? So those are the things that I, I tend to talk about with my colleagues. I'm sure there's plenty more out there, but in general, you have control or a individual practitioner in any of the medical fields has control over a lot of those aspects of their life. You know, that, that, last piece all of that is awesome and and i endorse all of it and as people that listen to me and are you know follow me at all know you know i love that you start with mindfulness meditation you know i i view uh mindfulness as the it's like water it's the universal solvent and when practiced consistently in its own you know timeline not the timeline of the mind. It, uh, you know, this is this. I'll try it out with you. This is the analogy I've been working on, Adam. It, uh, it can, over time, it can dissolve the uh, the aggregated habit patterns that have cluttered up our minds. No matter how smart we are, no matter how many degrees are accomplished or whatnot. You know, we have that survival brain that wants to protect from pain, and therefore we develop automatic habit patterns that I think clutter up our careers. And so, you know, I know I'm biased, but there's some science behind it. You know, mindfulness is a solvent for habit patterns when practiced consistently. And then I I think then that leads, if you're more aware in the present moment, less reactive, you're more likely to do the proactive scheduling because you have more clarity of perception and less of that impulsive, I just have to rush in and just do because that's who I am. And then you're more likely to pause and wonder about that identity and the, the, the arc of the career. And um, yeah, I, did, I just think that, you know, you don't have to, and you and I have talked about this, you know, you don't have to ascribe to any like you know religious stance you know any dharma you know the science is very clear it's training your mind training yeah. attention and i actually found it to be most useful in my personal life and yes. so uh, where where I, where i mean you know where i perceive that i have the most work to do is is catching up on that decade and a half or two decades of my life where i lived in the in the world of of dr adam and yeah. It, it did not develop for me the how to navigate, you know, stress within the family, stress with my friends, um, you know, and, and so I found if I'm anxious, I will react differently. If I'm aware of that anxiety to my wife or to my kids, I should say, and if I'm aware of that anxiety, it, it gives me potentially at least the, the off ramp to not simply be lost in that sensation of anxiety and explode back at them. Now, 
that is something that should not have happened at age 35 or 40, that realization. And, yeah. and, and yet that is when I started to develop that, that sense of, hmm, maybe just blowing up every time something doesn't go right at home because they should know that my day was bad because every day is bad because every day is filled with an endless pit of phone calls, questions, decisions, questions, and, and I can't handle anything else. And they yes. should know that. It, it totally denies their needs and wants and the legitimacy. I mean, they're not, you know, vassal states of my, of, of, of me. They are individuals right. who are in my right. life and I need to treat them as such. And yet that's right. not where my head was more often than not in those first, you know, 10 and 15 years of practice. I, I, I just think that, uh, you know, the fact that you said that you can, you know, find a way to practice, you know, awareness, you know, that flexible, clear, um present awareness 10 minutes you know it's really really hard to say that i i never have let's say just five minutes to you know but, but even just a few minutes on a regular basis you you can't unsee the clarity that comes from that yeah. you know and it's and it's the and this is the other thing i think might be compelling to any other you know scientist practitioners that might be listening it is ultimately empirical. It is like, it is very, it's not about believing anything. It is data. What is the data of my observing mind tell me when I run these little mini experiments of let me be aware and watch what happens, watch the changes. And then you just see that, hey, this, this awareness thing, it kind of works and creates more clarity and flexibility and non-reactivity in my personal life and in my professional life. This, this is some good, this is some good shit. Yeah. So. And, it, and it's hard because, you know, in the moment as, as a, as a, as a someone in healthcare, you know, you can be swinging from, you know, very, I think, traumatic interpersonal interactions. Um, you know, the most dramatic of which is, you know, presenting bad news, death and dying, things like that. But more often than not, what you're facing on a day-to-day -day basis is patients and families who are under stress, who are in, in, in I, I guess, you know, in great need of something, whether it's understanding how they're going to get better, what the impact of their life is. And, and, and the fact is that as a trained professional, I mean, just by mere fact of your degree, you have spent, you know, far more time and money than anyone in front of you for the most part will have yes. ever had in their life. And so, yes. and, and so then, you know, the, the, the expectation is that you are totally capable of managing this, walking out of the room, eating lunch, going to the next patient, death and dying, sickness and sadness, and moving on with your day. And, and that leaves a mark. And I think the typical physician response is to shut down. And so, yeah. because you don't, you don't wanna be emotionally invested because it's just too draining to do that all day. And right. you get good at that shutting down. And, and there's a space to, to, to process that, those thoughts and those experiences that, that comes, I think, in time, but it's also not something that happens on a daily basis. And, the, and being aware of how you're feeling about these things and how you react to them is just so powerful. I mean, you know, yes. whether it's at home or in the professional space, I, I agree with what you said. So that was a very long, a very long-winded way of saying it. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have, I'll put this out there because there's research around this as well that, you know, most people would say, you know, empathy is an important thing in our personal lives and our professional lives. And yet, 
you know, uh, you know cognitive psychologists like uh, Paul Bloom and others have done research that, you know, empathy, though wired into us, it can be problematic. You know, that it can narrow our perception. We can be over-identified with the pain of another and it can blunt our perception. It can lead to impulsive or just reactive responses versus what I will call and others would call in this research, you know, compassion that can have, um, you know, you care and you feel, but there's space around it. There's a perceptive space where you see the other's pain, you feel the other's pain, but you don't identify with it. And you see the whole field around it, including your own needs and the needs of others and the needs of the moment. And I, I, I put that out there for any other healthcare professionals listening that, you know, empathy, though, in, at times it can be an awesome thing. It can motivate us to, to aid a family member or a close friend or whatnot. Um, it can motivate us when we see those, you know, really god awful commercials around disasters or dogs that are being, you know, abused, and we we donate because we're wired for that. And yet we need to train our minds to move beyond empathy, you know, to to train our brains to be able to be compassionately aware and have that flexible percep perception. I think physicians that can you know, like you that can begin to really practice this, you can feel your patient and not be lost in that patient, not be fried by that patient. You can, you, and they can feel you compassionately noticing them. And even if it's just a little micro moment, you know, some of the, the best moments I've had as a therapist have been those moments where I've just slowed down enough for just a second or two longer and let the silence, the warm silence between me and the patient be. And they could uh, see me seeing into what was there for them. That was probably way more powerful than any crap coming out of my mouth. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I am fortunate that in, in nephrology, I don't have to maintain the same boundaries that those of you in psychology and psychiatry have to maintain. <laughs> and so I usually... I, I as and I still have a small clinical practice, and I actually am able to adjust my schedule to make it essentially a an amazingly fun day for me, um, nice. because I am not you know I am not dependent on the on the income from this, and it's I do it to to be continually I guess you know involved in in frontline clinical care for a variety of reasons, but but what it does it gives me the opportunity to get to know patients a whole lot better, and I actually start with what well, you know the part of the history and physical that is the social history because once you know who people are and you recognize that and you understand where they're coming from everything else falls into place about what's possible within you know the care needs and more importantly i think they feel identified and understood and yes. then if you're real savvy about it and you write little notes to yourself about that stuff you can ask about it next time and the patients will you know i guess perceive that you fully remember and even though you might not fully remember every detail the notes jog your memory enough that yeah. you can fill in some of the blanks. And it's, it's, yeah. it's terribly fulfilling to have that kind of, that was an interesting choice of words. It is very fulfilling <laughs> to, to have that kind of relationship with patients. And there's now patients that I've had for 20 years, but I'm able to spend more time with them in the last couple of years as I've had a different role. 
and 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 I can see why one enjoyed being a physician because I think the other thing I, I feel obligated to say is that it is an absolute privilege to be given access to people like I'm getting given access. I mean, mm. who else gets to walk in a room and ask all sorts of personal questions and people answer them and I say things <laughs> and people do them. And I say, I mean, as a kidney doctor, I'm worried about things like urine output and all that. And I'll say, Hey, you, Mr. Or Mrs. Patient, I've met you within the last, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. I need you to go home and collect all of your urine for 24 hours in a jar. And they go do it. I mean, who the hell has that? That's a crazy notion when you step back from what's going on. But that's the gravitas. And then, and so the question becomes, how do you enjoy that without turning it into a truck, you know, a, a drudgery every day? And and part of that is these kind of tricks. And I, I anyway, I, I don't know. I don't know if we're still on topic or not. But that. Oh, this, we're totally on topic. We're totally on topic. It's absolutely. I think. I think you know, figuring this stuff out is absolutely imperative for each individual physician and, and clinician in the in these fields if they're going to sustain themselves over time and how they pace themselves through a career. And and I, I was just uh, writing something about this today uh, with an eye toward um, some, you know, you know, consulting I want to do and training I want to do for professionals from different fields around, you know, it's kind of that begin with the end in mind. Yeah. You know, none of us want to, uh, I think even physicians want to think about our own death. And yet, you know, thousands of years of Stoic philosophy would have, and, and, and Eastern philosophy and other philosophies would say, hey, you know, there's a lot of value in pausing and really considering the end of your time here. And, you know, instead of it being a morbid thing, it can be a real um, opening thing to, you know, kind of think of that headstone and think of that name and the the digits of birth and death on it and see it over there on the stone and underneath it is that epitaph you know who was this person their life what were they driven by what was this life about and you know i've i've often put that out to patients of mine to step back and vision what they would have that say and ha and do it now and through various you know angles like that there are many way devices for having people really consider the end and then back it up into the meaning that can be here and now as a compass setting you know that's not something that has to be um, super time intensive because it's already there in us if we really tap into it there are things that just doctors matter. don't die. Doctors don't yeah. die. I'm sorry, Mitch. I'm, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> we don't get sick. We don't die. I'm just joking. Well, you know what? I, you know, you know, a a kid that I know, a teen, college student, just wrote a very cool poem that he showed uh, me recently on this awesome idea of technology in the future is advanced, and this person is literally the last human being to die. Ah, and so he's chosen to die, even though the technology is there to keep everybody alive. But he's chosen. He wrote a poem about this, which I thought was just so cool. That is a um, common trope in science fiction, and and it's interesting because you're right. You know, the, the 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 exploration of that notion has often led to very strange behaviors, and 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 those <laughs> in the stories, and and the behaviors essentially start to devalue the existence because there's no end to it and yeah. 
And and so I, I think you're 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 spot on actually, which is that exercise of getting of taking a step back from the day to day sort of you know cycle of what you do and thinking broader about you know what what is it that I would like to say I've accomplished is is a, is a good exercise to go through, and that's part of that vacation. It's part of that taking time away. Um, it's hard to get at that. It's hard and you, you know, yeah. children and families and time. But having said that, that's that's what I see as the mission and vision. What is my personal yeah. mission and vision? And 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 it's it sounds a little hokey. It sounds a little like, hey, there's the book of MBA books on my shelf. I don't have an MBA, but you know, right. I got the books. And um and 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 yet, and yet, if you don't have that, it, it's it's easy to to find yourself a decade, two decades, three decades in with a lot of minor or I should say small accomplishments, but not sort of a, a, an arc toward a, a grander vision that feels like, you know, you've defined and you have purpose and meaning beyond simply, I ate breakfast day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, whatever. What I would say, and I, I know we're running out of time, but I, I'll put this out there, you know, that the best epitaphs really would be confusing <laughs> to people, the most meaningful ones because it would be a few verbs, because it most accurately would say, this wasn't a fixed person. This was a person who showed up regularly to certain patterns, certain verbs of action that just mattered yeah. to them. And uh, so mine would, I won't, I won't share it now, maybe in another episode, but it, it would be, I, I actually take pleasure in thinking about the eventual person standing over mine, like, what the hell is this? <laughs> but then they're, then they're thinking, then they're, maybe they're present, maybe they're puzzling over it a bit, but you know, that yes, it, it can seem hokey. It can seem like, okay, that's, that's not anything relevant. And yet I would challenge anyone to wonder if maybe that's part of their habit pattern to have that thought response that's hokey or that I don't need to do that. You know, but, you know, I think the ultimate antidote to burnout or to stuckness in career is a willingness to own the pain and to relate to it and to wonder about, you know, what am I identifying with here? What am I buying into? Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's spot on. I, I, I mean, you know, sort of self-awareness of the of the problem is obviously the first step toward it. And it's interesting because the. The, the, the world I live in today spends an enormous amount of effort worrying about how much time we ask of our physicians. And yeah. so I have a team of people that worry about the cadence and frequency of email messages to doctors, knowing that we don't want them to spend more than X amount of time looking at information. And so we are very thoughtful about that and the length of those emails. I mean, it seems at some level crazy, but that's why I have people that do that. I have people that worry just about if we're going to offer educational materials to physicians, how do we appropriately get the content into a, a form and format that is digestible, that recognizes yes. they're going to get interrupted. And then when we write software, I have an entire user interface and user research design team that worries about workflow and the number of clicks. And while we don't always get it right, you know, we, we have an iterative process that drives toward, again, respecting the time of the user. And what's interesting is that all of us recognize that this is an issue. And yeah. yet so many of my colleagues are, you know, just reactive to it. And so it's, I think your, your point is so well taken, which is, you know, if they're not 
if, if, if a person is, is not recognizing this and sort of working on it, then, then all the extra time savings, all the extra things that everyone else is worrying about probably don't matter quite as much. There's, there's certainly truth to if the captain of the ship is freaking out in the middle, in midst of a storm, the other people on the ship are going to get really nervous and bad things can happen. And yet there are moments, you know, in my own experience as a, as a leader of a team, you know, I think there's, there are the moments where you don't want to do that, where you need to kind of keep moving and not be showing the raw. And then there are the moments where you're raw and it's not necessarily that everything would fall apart. In fact, the team is going to, and I think you know, what we didn't have time to talk about is the contagion effect that can happen, right? Mm -hmm. In an organization or even in a small practice, but there can be a positive contagion effect in my own direct experience. I think there's some research on this. If a leader or even just a member of the team can pause, and again, I think it's mindfulness, they drop in and they very authentically and courageously you know say something like you know what this is hard yeah. this or, is really this is overwhelming and I, i'm i'm struggling with it right now the thing that i think the research does say is if someone owns error or they own the vulnerability and yet they are still bringing competence the other the perception of the others is okay i can still work with that person I can be led by that person, but if somebody is in complete chaos and their competence is eroded, and then they're like, you know, saying they can't, you know, they're overwhelmed and whatnot, that's a different perception. But I think people tend to, in perception, lump any acknowledgement of stuckness, yeah. you know, you know, in in a in a bad way. It's interesting because in the last few years, I've adopted the phrase, you know, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety or I'm feeling a lot of pressure around this issue. And, and I've, I found myself on occasion apologizing to people at the beginning of a meeting or even in an exam room to say, you know, I am walking in having just experienced a couple of things and those things are still in my mind. I apologize if I'm not 100% present today or I'm not as present as I'd wanna be. And then we joke around that and, and starting off with that acknowledgement, which um, I find clears the air and sometimes actually drives a, a more engagement at that level to yeah to, and so anyway I, th I think again it's a long way of saying i agree <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad all right adam you know uh, adam weinstein thank you so much for joining me this is a obviously very important conversation i'd, I'd love to have you back on i'm sure we could do a part two part three around this and other topics but this has been great i hope it's been helpful to to those listening but thank you so much Oh, this was great fun. Thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Prize of Possibility. I hope you found things of benefit here. If so, please consider giving this show a positive review. Such feedback is not only great to hear, um, it also really helps elevate the show so that others can find benefit from it. Please stay tuned, more episodes, some great guests on the way so that we can together discover these true life prizes in daily life. Take care.